0: Welcome to The Directors Take, a podcast where we explore how you go from directing something with your mates to being the most senior decision maker on a film set. I'm Marcus Thomas.
1: And I'm Oz Arshad, and we are both writer-directors at the beginning of our TV and feature film directing journeys. The pathway doesn't exist, so we are going to do our best to help you bridge the gap. Hey, how you doing? We're back now for part two of Lewis Arnold. And we know that people have been waiting with bated breath for this one. I don't actually know what bated breath means. I hope it's, like, not offensive anymore. The episode last week did really, really well. We've got some pretty crazy numbers on it. People have been sharing it. People have been talking about it. Thank you for that. Keep doing that. It really helps us. And it opens us up to new listeners. This part two is also a banger. It's got so much more of Lewis' experience in it. So once again, favorite it because you probably come back to it to learn more, and I hope you enjoy it. It's another special one. So we want to dig into your process a little bit um and we want to just talk about so say congratulations, Luis, you got a job. What's the first thing that you do you know how how did you break do you break scripts down um when you when, you, when you're doing something like time or long shadow or Des.
2: Yeah, Ian used to say, you know, one of the director's main jobs is to read the scripts every day, which is hard. If you're doing a feature film, it will maybe a bit easier because it's a 100-page script. You know, when you're doing seven hours of telly, you know, it's really hard. Or you're doing three hours of telly, it's really hard to read, you know, 700 pages or whatever every day. So, But I do try and read an episode or two a day because every time you read them and I think this was Ian's point you find new things out you unlock new things you see things differently and it's kind of you can get into a habit of reading it thinking you know it and then not really ever actually just sitting down and reading it again so I try to force myself to at least read an episode a day where I'll just sit and pick an app and just read it and just make notes and sort of and keep that going across the whole whole job. You know, casting, I, I, I. first thing I'll do is get a script. I don't break it down immediately because i I'd probably spend the first couple of weeks of a show reading the scripts and coming up with notes and trying to think about how what the mm-hmm. vision is. Like, so what kind of director notes I want to give the writer that, I think are important questions I think we need to ask, you know, depending on a lot of the stuff I've done recently is true crime, a lot of research you do before you sort of jump in that sort of coexists as you're reading and making notes on the script, you're looking at material and, you know, i spoke about mood boards as a constant evolution. The minute I get a job, start thinking about casting, like immediately. I work with Victor Jenkins. He didn't do time, but he's he's done a lot of my other stuff. We met on humans and he generally casts everything I've done and we have a very good relationship. So I bring victor in very early on and have a couple of creative chats with victor and then we start throwing names around and the way we kind of work is you know you try and offer good people but if we we pick the roles we're going to see people for and we'll usually pick a role and see loads of people for a role self-tapes but we'll do one role and then try and and he'll pick good people and then i'll try and that's what we did on the long shadow with sonia and then try and position those people in other roles if they're not quite right for that role. So what we're doing essentially is getting them on tape, so the execs have got something on tape, and we, you know, we've got a point of reference. But then the good people, we make notes of and We try and fit them in the show if we like them. Um, and you know, we try to only if we're going to do in the room, which is the preference. If we're going to do in the room auditions, we just try to do. We try to do the work outside the room. So I only like to see two or three people for a role instead of seeing 10 and then the seven people that have nine people that haven't got a job. I'd prefer to see three people having had a list of 10 and gone and watched stuff and done my homework and narrowed that down outside the room because I like to spend time in the room with people. I don't like it when I've only got 20 minutes. I like having half an hour, 40 minutes to chat, to ease them in because I can't act and I could think of nothing fucking worse than walking into a room and someone going, right, do you want to go? i would go, fuck, I'm nervous. So I like to do a bit of talk about the last director the directors they've worked with the shows they've done that i love uh the things i've seen how their day is what they're up to and then start talking about the project and put the pressure on me to pitch the project for them and then say look you know do you want to do the scene and so it takes time um to get the best out of people in an audition situation so i kind of prefer to do the work outside the room yeah and i spoke about the page turn everything else i do is kind of is what everybody does. You know, you meet in HODs, you audition audition your HODs, as well as you audition your cast. You make sure you get the right people that see the vision of the show in the same way that you do, or you bring in your key collaborators who you work a lot with. But everything else is, is, is the same in terms of prep. Um, you know, I, I got a lot of people I work a lot, a lot of people I work with constantly. I don't really like to sort of, there's some directors I've spoke to who like every job to bring in a new DOP to freshen up what they're doing. And I kind of am a sort of creature of habit. You know, people will notice I work a lot with the same actors and I work a lot with the same crew. There's a reason that Martin Scorsese works with similar actors across his career and same with Wes Anderson. You know, this game is about trust, about relationships and you become a family as a crew and... Uh, you know, I believe in loyalty to those people, but also it's not just about me being loyal to them. Is they understand who I am, they understand my tastes. There's a second hand there basically, and I can get more out of a project. Like so, I work with the same designer Anna Higginson. I adore her. Um, work with and the same editor Sasha. Um, you know, Sasha work, and you know, like I couldn't do a job without those two. They know me inside out. They know my tastes. They know. And it means that I don't. Sasha can do things. So Sasha does a lot. I mean, I don't think people realize how important Sasha is to my process, but he talks to music, the music, the composer. And if we have a music supervisor, the music supervisor, while I'm filming, he'll be talking to those. He'll be having conversations on my behalf whilst I'm filming to keep things moving and present ideas to me. And. Uh, you know, like I trust him implicitly. We have a lot of conversations. I mean, we generally, and generally, what happens with me is I shouldn't really probably confess this openly, but um, you know, I'll get a script, and if I'm considering doing the script, I'll sometimes talk to Sasha about it as a project. Because if Sasha said, Oh, I don't, I don't know if I want to do that, it would change my perception of whether I wanted to do it because we're very in sync, you know, and very close. and You know, we work very, and we worked together on Dark Money. It was the first thing we did together and, you know, Des, Time, Sherwood, the long shadow. When we people see the long shadow, Sasha's done all of it. We had a, an assistant editor who we'd worked with for years, who we, who helped us assemble, t- who did two eps, uh, the co-shared credit on two EPS, and was who was fundamental in us doing it in the time we did it. But what people won't realize is with the long shadow is, you know, most hours of telly are edited in three weeks and three weeks is... It's tight to do an hour of telling. Considering you think a feature film of, you know, 20 minutes more takes 17 weeks, three weeks. Sasha did four episodes of The Long Shadow, enable for him to do all of it in two weeks and half. I, and I don't know anyone that could do it like that. And that only exists because we have a second hand. It only exists because uh, we just, our tastes are similar. So what's coming into the edit is things that he... And and choices and decisions that if he was directing he probably would make although he doesn't want to ever direct. So we we you find a kinship with people in your team whether that's editor or whoever, and you know it's really important to hold on to those relationships. You know you, your careers grow and your voice grows because my voice isn't just my voice it's it's the voice of the people I work with and the projects. I just I pick the projects but the team are the people that help me achieve what we achieve. So you know. Um, I don't know why I'm talking about this, but uh, but yeah, so I I, I, I I like working with the same people and I don't think there's any harm in that. And that doesn't mean that inevitably in this business, your, your schedules go out of sync. Um, so it's not that I don't work with new people. I do. And those relationships are great. Uh, and uh, sometimes what happens is you then have two people that you love working with. I used to work with Paolo Pandolfo and then Johnny, um, Johnny Rayner, who were two editors I adore before Sasha... And if Sasha and Dominic Strebens and if Sasha wasn't available, I'd go back to one of those guys. And if they weren't available, then you'd open it up to someone new. But my instinct is always to go to the people that I've had good collaborative relationships with before. As as you two do, you know, like, I mean, Marcus, you said earlier, you know, Sonia shot your new film. It's, you know, when something works and it's not broken, why try fix it? And makes your life easier as well. Yeah. You know, work with people who understand where you're coming from and understand your
1: artistic sensibility. Um, so we wanted to talk about your process of how you construct sequences. Uh, and Marcus, you've got a question about Sherwood.
0: Um, the there's a murder right with a crossbow um, in the first episode, and then you cover the finding out of it like um, in like a one take. All of it takes place on one street. Like there's three people that live in the same street in the houses in the proximity of it. So I'm like, to execute that in a one shot if you've got the house in the wrong place or you've kind of like made a decision where this is um, and it's wrong, then that one shot suddenly becomes like a minute and a half long and then that's too long and it's going to slow the whole thing down. So like um, things like these sorts of sequences, these sorts of ideas, like how do you communicate them? Like how, how do you go about constructing them? Um, And at the the points we have to kind of like shift story around or kind of speak to the writer to, to go about, presenting these sorts of creative ideas yeah
2: so what you're talking about is in, in Sherwood when which is based on a true story in James Graham's hometown in Nottingham which was that they woke up uh a guy that lived on the street that the residents woke up and found the guy who lived in one of the houses on the floor and he'd been and, and what happened to the real person was much more um severe but he'd been shot with a, a crossbow and, and uh, attacked on the street he was found in the morning and James so and in script, Jane Blumsey writes this moment where Leslie Manville's character, the police knock on the door and she knows something's wrong and she runs out and, and sees uh, And I think as it was written in the script, she comes out of the house. It was on the same road. It was written as it was in real life, which was she they knocked on the door. She looked down the road and she saw the police and the body. So the reaction was there. When we came to find the main house and the main location we found this house so i i wanted everything to i want the, the wood to be constant in everything in the same way that and my reference for it was true detective and the sort of way the cornfields and sort of kansas sort of is part of the character and the tone of that first series of true detective was an eeriness to sort of the the world through this sort of the, the, the landscape and I also quoted, you know, the Cohen Brothers, if you think of the Cohen Brothers movies all of the Cohen Brothers movies, which was a big reference for Sherwood, the landscape is such an important part of Tone. So we found this house that, that with the wood around it, and it was an old pit village in Manchester. Um, and the problem for James was that the house i picked or wanted, the, the where I was going to do the murder was, was round the corner uh, and. That was a big thing for him for me to convince him and that was one of the, the few times and james is such an amazing collaborator he works in theater so he's very very open and very collaborative but i had to do a recce i, I james came up three tech reckeys and i walked him and the exact producers around that set that house and as part of that nervousness that James would really fight against and want to put the house on the main street, which we could do, but the houses were smaller and it, it wasn't quite as in, there was something about this idea of the geography of the the, the way the houses all linked. As part of that organically, I'd came up with this idea as the sell to him, which was, look, if the, the moment you're worried about is the moment that um, Julie finds Gary's body the way that I think I can conceive that is if she gets the knock and she senses and I'm going to do it. And I basically came up with that idea yeah. as a way to help link the geography for James so that he didn't feel that moment was broken. So it was very it was very organic. It wasn't me trying to be flashy. It was me understanding that what James wanted was a real-time, in the script, you know, she steps out of the house, sees the body, it's real-time, you're just there and shot as she discovers it on her doorstep and so i was like okay that's really important that's really interesting as well this idea of staying with this character this dawning realization builds and builds and builds and builds and so i knew that it was a steady cam thing as she slowly goes out and you know and then you're blessed and the reality is a lot of people say that, that one shot scene it's not actually one shot it's it's two shots there's another shot at the end that when i think you do a successful one shot people forget that there's other there's other things uh, and uh you know I was just blessed with the reason that sequence really works is because Leslie's phenomenal and she like that whole interaction with the police was unscripted and her just sort of emotionally and we never we were rehe- we never rehearsed I did one walkthrough with her and then I'm a big believer in those situations and I did the walk through with her and and we didn't put the actor playing Alan on the floor so I did the walk through with yeah. her very coldly like this is This is it. This is roughly where you're going to be. I don't really want to plot too much out for you. And then we did the first take and it was like, and I think we did three takes, but we did the first take and it was like, try to create it It as real as possible. So when she goes around that corner, she doesn't know where the body's going to be, as the character wouldn't know where the body's going to be. And she doesn't know what the police are going to do. And I've told the camera team, you just have to go. I can't, we can't plot this too much. And the reality is what you get is a very organic reaction of an actor trying to give you an, an acting as if that part, you know, so it's very like, it's messy and real basically. Uh, but it was a very organic thing. It wasn't me going, Oh, it, it came about from a series of problems and challenges and trying to best serve the script and the intentions of, of the script. You know, there are situations where you do want to be a bit flashy I'm trying to think, uh, you know, I think like Des, there's a sequence where so Des spoke for hours, I mean, it was days actually, about these random and awful things that he said about these men with, you know, couldn't remember their names, but could remember like all these details. And also, the whole point of Des was to sort of show him as a bit of a slight liar and uh, narcissist. And so, we had this sequence in episode one where we montaged him smoking, continually smoking, like spurting out all these things that he said that we think now are. In hindsight, our lies, he made up these extra three people because he wanted to have one more name than Peter Sutcliffe, who had been arrested, um, the years before, which would have made him the most. Uh, so we did this, and that was a bit of us being flashy. We shot us frame rates. We, you know, because we wanted to create this kind of stylistic montage. So that was built very much specifically, like we had an hour. And we shot a lot of stuff quickly and got David to basically, we wrote out an appendix at the back of the script and made Luke write an appendix where he wrote, wrote out a lot of stuff that David learned as a scene. And then we knew we'd cut into it and create a sequence. So that was very much designed and we created an hour where we could basically mess around and get special shots and frame rates and stuff. Um, so it, it depends on what it is you're, you're doing, um, but generally, it's always about what does the script need, and the reason we were able to be a bit flashier there, maybe a bit, I was able to be a bit more showy, was because, you know, it, it was a bit freer, and mon- that we needed to be a bit more a montage. Um, you know, time. You know, a lot of it as long one shots, but that's really just because you just don't want to break the energy and the tension of what it's like to be in a prison no most people will hopefully never go to prison so you kind of want to go from that system with sean so you know the, the shot i always knew when i read the script that the scene where um baz gets uh the hot cow sugar thrown in his face i always knew i wanted to do that as a. I one when i read the script i was like you know there is no way you want to cut out this moment you want to be totally in that moment but the problem with a sh- one shot like that is like you're dictated to by you can't conceive it before you're there on the day because it's how do you make that work? Because I don't like one shots where they feel like one shots. So I went in and said, I'd love to play it out as one, but if we have to break it, we'll break it. But I had to go to Jimmy first with that because Jimmy had written two in the script. He'd written two moments in that sequence where it close up the kettle and then he'd written another shot later down where it close up this. And I had to go back to him and say, I want to do this like this. I don't want to get those. I want to play this out. And I I pitched it to him. He went, yeah, whatever. Do it. Do whatever. He was great. He was like really like liberating and just like, yeah, I trust you. Just, just do what you think. And then on that, for example, like then it's like, actually, can we make it work as a one shot uh, without it feeling forced? Um, and so you have to be off dialogue and you have to do things that you, you know, and we we did it knowing that it wasn't a necessity. It didn't have to be a wanna but if we could make it work, it would be great to stay with Sean. So the key thing was stay with Sean, stay in the character, Mark's emotional sort of journey of this scene. And even if we just catch what's happening back there, don't worry. I don't want to come off him, follow them, follow another character and find Sean again. I, I want to stay with Sean. And if that becomes incidental on background, then that's fine. And then we heightened things ironically in the edit. We added steam to the kettle. So that we never used hot water um and we added sound effects to just bring the audience attention to things um but generally like you know this big secret the, the you know opening event three of sherwood is a, a picket line and uh the, the the scab miners coming in and the police and the uh, uh, the strikers basically clashing and i storyboarded that um and we didn't have any money for a storyboard artist because i usually work with a song called rachel garlic who's brilliant and i Basically, drew really bad pictures, which I do on every scene anyway. Um, so I stunned it, but it spent a little bit more time. And then I got a load of reference photos and built a shot list with like photographs of the exact and the sequence played out exactly as I wanted. And then I printed it and on the day, so I took over second block. Ben was directing, and I took over for a day to shoot that sequence. And I put it on big cardboard and stuck it onto C stands. And everybody could just walk over, and, and I think I did two copies of it. So I put one by the the um, the check monitors, so that if anybody wanted to have a look at what we were doing and get a sense of it, they could. And then I had a version which I was I had a big marker pen and I cut cross out and go, I need to get something else because we didn't quite get that in this. And and I had the big, and I used that as a way of going through that day because it needed that level of uh, detail because it was a huge, you know. 150 sas stunts fighting rubber bricks like it was massive so it needed that level of detail and planning and the reality is i didn't have any of the crew to plan it with so i actually had to happen was i had to storyboard it and then i had to schedule it myself which helped i used to be a first um schedule it and then i had to basically go onto the floor because they were already filming and basically that's why i kind of did the, the printouts and say to everybody, this is what we're doing essentially. And this is the order of what we're going to try and achieve and the way we're going to do it. Um, and it was great. I mean, we had three cameras. We had Ben, the second, the, the second block director was there as well, helping me and stuff. It was a really, it was probably the funnest day on that job actually. Um, because like, like we said earlier on the big stuff, you know, it's like, if you take what we're talking about, which is directing on the big stuff, the support, it's the same with stunts, you know, on stunts, there is always preparation, care and attention into stuff. And the stuff, the reality is the stuff that goes wrong is the stuff that you don't think will go wrong. The two-hander in the cafe that goes wrong because not enough time and thought has been into it because it shouldn't be a problem. And that's the stuff that always goes wrong. The small stuff.
1: You were saying that you do your own little sort of like thumbnail boards or whatever. Yeah. So do you know like when you are breaking a script down scene for scene, do you do that or do you at least leave it up for
2: serendipity when you go in? Into- yeah, it's funny. I do on Instagram. I do a thing where I basically post all this stuff. So I do a thing where I do fiction versus reality, which is so I do thumbnails, and you see they're really bad drawings. They're like James Gunn does them as well. James Gunn does like you know they're really bad drawings. But what they do is it. The reason they do it is because it forces you to interrogate the scene. So every, and I try and do it at the start of the job for the first couple of weeks of filming, and then inevitably you end up catching up with yourself and you end up planning the the next day or the next two days, the, the night before, you know what I mean? So I end up getting to a point where every night after filming, I have to go home, probably watch some casting tapes, watch some assemblies give notes on assemblies and then have to spend an hour going through the next day's work or the the day after the next day's work so try and stay one day ahead because then if i'm asking for something that night they've got a day to facilitate it instead of going that night i need this 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 this, because that's difficult on a crew so you try to stay as ahead as you can but the reason i do it is because i read the scene really read the scene. And then I usually will try and figure out blocking, like, what am I thinking? Where do I think they're going to be? Why are they there? And then I start thumbnailing it out what shots do I need to tell this story? Because it forces me to interrogate the scene and the storytelling. And then I go to the floor and I've got a plan and I can throw that away. You know, I think I've probably did this to you both, but there's an amazing anecdote that I always tell, which is if you've not seen it into the heart of darkness, which is the making of apocalypse. Now there's a great moment. I've definitely told you this story. Um, there's a great moment where Francis Ford Capella is arguing with Dennis Hopper on a, uh, on, on a pier because he's not doing any of the lines. And Dennis Hopper's high as a kite. And he's like, man, fuck the lines, Francis. Like, don't watch, fuck the lines. bro. We're actors, man. We throw that shit away. And Francis Ford Capella really, really says, Dennis Hopper, he's like, you can't fucking throw the lines away unless you've learned them, Dennis. And it's that, it's like, you can throw a plan away. Like I can, exactly like that story earlier with Des and that one shot, and then we were able to go, we got it. Like, because I had a plan in place, we were able to organically find a simpler way of doing it. If I didn't have a plan in place and know that I didn't need that wide crossing over the tables, I could have spent half an hour on the floor figuring out how I was going to catch on the scene. Half an hour on a film set is so much money and time. You just don't have that time. You have to go in as a director and have a plan. The plan can change it's okay for the plan to change, but you have to have a plan or an idea because the first thing that happens on a film set is you walk in and if AD says to you, I've got two hours for this, is that enough? If you just go, well, yeah, I'll make it enough. And then the actors come in and they go, so where do you want me, what do you think? If you don't have answers to these questions, it takes time to figure this stuff out. And then they do that and they rehearse and you go, great. And then the cameraman goes, have you got any thoughts? And you go, no, no what were you thinking? If that's every single question, that's time just wasted. It's okay to have that of a couple of things, but you need to have ideas in place. You need to have done the work and interrogated it to be able to throw it away. And so I did, that's why I do thumbnails, is to interrogate and to have a plan that I can easily reject or, or, or work away. And that's not for every director. Some directors need to be completely organic and need to be have that space to find it. But then they need the schedule and the support to back that up. Whereas the things I do, I don't have time to not do it that way. If that makes sense.
0: So I'm segueing on to a talk about scheduling. So like, because I think when, when you cheated me, it was probably the only time it happened in the way which you did it was that like, you cut all of the schedule up into strips and you sat down and like went through it with me, the schedule bit by bit. And it was like, you're going to save a bit of time if you kind of shoot this room out like in one rather than kind of uh, trying to split it across to keep it chronological and things like that. I've, it comes from your background as a first in working with the schedule. So how would you go about scheduling? How would you make time for yourself um, and how do you work with that? Uh,
2: I mean, so it's worth saying first and foremost that all directors hate scheduling and schedules because you're t- you feel I-, I feel like I'm tying myself into things, and I'm nervous because all directors want as much time as they can to craft the thing they can as beautifully as they can. So agreeing with a first that something will take two hours is frightening. There's no there's no way to not for it not to be frightening from my perspective, even as a first when I'm the person trying to convince the director that you have no choice that has to be done in two hours. So it's worth stating that Graham, for example, who I spoke by, who's the first I work with, you know, will spend the first week of a job after he's got a rough schedule together trying to get me to pin me down to go, look, I just want to go through the the schedule with you. I just want to page turn it and go through it. And I'm very disengaged and and and, and struggle to want to do that because I it's painful, but I do it and you have to do it. And what I try to do is say to him, can we do it in bits? So can we do a couple of weeks, look at the first two weeks and then not because he he just wants to and on Des, he took me for he took me for a TFI Fridays, sat me down in TFI Fridays and we did the whole thing. It was only in all fairness on, on Des, it was a eight week shoot. So it was, you know, the thing we just did is a twenty week shoot. So when he wanted me to sit me down in the office on a morning on like a Monday morning and go through the whole twenty weeks. You know, by the time you get to week six, I'm disengaged because as a director, I'm focused on those first few weeks because that's where my energy and so look, as a director, don't be afraid if you're not interested in (laughs) in sitting down and doing it. However, you do have to do it and I do do it because I have a belief and I think I would have told you this, Marcus, when I made you do it was you have to agree to sign up to the schedule and you're the only person that can really find solutions and help the first give you time. You can free up time but you have to start thinking as a director about the schedule. It's not someone else's responsibility. It is their responsibility to help you, but the schedule is inevitably going to impact you. And when directors start to realize that and engage with it in a different way, you can get more out of it. So by me cutting up your short film schedule that you presented to me and re it and saying, look, actually, and I think all it was the simple things, which was you went... Uh, you ju- you jumped around locations a little bit for lighting reasons but you're in a studio and things could be pre-lit it was like look I, I i think i managed to sort of show you that you could save a couple of hours by doing a few things a little bit differently but a couple of when you sh- start showing directors they they start to go fuck a couple of hours is a lot of time it's a lot of time that's and then I quickly work that's four five six shots you know um so yeah you have to engage like and i uh, I find it painful, but as all directors, I'm sure, do, but, you know, you have to do it. You know, you have to go through it and you have to sort of really think about things and start to give up the information that you do have to the first because they're working for you. They want a good first want to give directors the most amount of time to succeed on the floor. And so they can only do that. There are times where you're backed into a corner. For example, on Des, I remember, and it was my choice at the end of the day, but my first... Uh, Graham was the first on that, but my producer was David Meaty, who was a first. He was the first on Chernobyl. He's been a first for years, and he was producing, Des was his first producing gig, and he's now producing Andor, mm-hmm. an amazing man, a, a leader, just beautiful human being and a real leader and a real communicator. And David David, um, convinced Graham I'd wanted to do this scene over this location over two days. So it was a day and then a half day, and then we do a unit move to somewhere else. And the schedule was slightly over length and we had to get it to work. And, and David was like, you have to do, the way to make this schedule work is you have to do that day and a half's work in a day. And I was really resistant. And we went and sat down and looked at it together and I agreed. I was like, okay, I can see why I can see the benefits of doing it in a day. The idea of doing that work in a day scares me and I don't think it's achievable. But I can see the benefits of it. So let's try. Uh and then what, what I was able to do was go, but for me to be able to achieve this day that I'm worried about, I need a second camera. And I don't need a second camera to shoot. I just need a second camera on a steady cam so that I don't waste any time going from camera to steady camera. So I need all the bits to be able to just move freely between. And I asked for certain things to help me achieve that day. So when you know the days are going to be hard, you can ask for certain things, pre-calls extended day, I think we might have done an extended day in that day and asked the crew to do a 12 hour day with an hour lunch instead of the standard 11 day 11 hour, 10 on camera so that, you know, but you can only have those conversations and express your concerns and and compromise with each other if you engage with the schedule basically um, yeah I think that's it really, I think it's like don't be afraid, don't be worried if you don't want to engage with it, it's scary to engage with it but inevitably you have to engage with it
1: going back to Alice's episode one of the last advice she gave was the most successful directors are those who are schedule minded because they understand you know what's on the page and what needs to happen and obviously with yourself being a first you have got that you know um, across when you're looking at a work and break a script and breaking it down you've got some semblance of okay, so, you know, this is gonna, this actually could take this long and this is the most efficient way to do this.
2: But it's interesting because I think all directors should be schedule-minded because it affects you. You're the only person it affects. And, and this is the thing. Like, at the end of the day, if a first says to you, at the end of the day, you spent six hours shooting a scene that should have took you two hours, and the first says to you, the scene at the end of the day that you needed three hours to do, you've got an hour, basically, that's on you. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, it's you that suffers there, not them. They go home and they're paid to be a first. They'll be gutted for you, maybe. So it's like all directors have to take responsibility of schedule, because you know, gone are the days where I used to hear stories where directors didn't complete days on purpose and they got extra days filming, and this that happens might happen. But those directors are no, except the, the, the producers. Are like, oh yeah, don't hire them; they don't complete. Now it's okay to not complete a day if there are real reasons. So mm-hmm. we had it on the last show where the Jenny, the Jenny broke, so the lighting went down for an hour and a half, and so they gave it. They, everybody agreed to stay an hour over, and we lost half an hour, and I had to simplify something by half an hour. You know. That's okay. It wasn't they extended the day because I was being slow or I wasn't prepared or, you know, exec producers, if a particular actor is, I don't know, if there's situations or stuff that arise that are out of your control, producers and exec producers are sympathetic. They get it. It's just when it happens regularly and there's no reason. And the other thing is, the other thing that exec producers are weary of is, you know, I shoot a lot. I, I generally probably... Could do a scene in one shot, and I might always get two. I just that's my nature. It's it's kind of how I like to be in the edit. I like to have a certain amount of flexibility, and um, and I like takes. So I start shooting very early. I like to get the actors loosely blocked, and then I like to start getting it on camera. Things can change, and we can shape the performance. But I like to do it on camera before it starts to stagnate, and and the actors sort of feel they're just recapturing stuff. So I end up with a lot of material. So with me, if I don't complete a day and they look at my, they look at the sheets, they, they have, I don't know if you saw them on House of Dragon, but at the end of the day that the script, site suppose it is a sheet that's like, I don't know what they call it now, but, um, it has, you know, start time of the day, the wrap time, when you broke for lunch, when you came back on, how many slates you did, how long you were on each scene for blah, blah, blah. And it has the, 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 the total. Yeah. It's like, it's like the continuity report or the, the report of the end of the day. If they look at that and you've shot 25 slates that day, but you've dropped a scene, they're going to go, unless they look at the scenes and they go, yeah, that probably took a lot of coverage because it was four people around the table, five people around the table, whatever, whatever. They're going to start going, you're overshooting stuff and sacrificing the end of the day and you're not being disciplined enough. And that's a big thing in our industry as a whole. It's why a lot of producers are nervous now is, and it's what film school teaches you is, the problem a lot we have now is that, that, that um, stock is cheap, you can shoot a movie on your phone, you can, digital is cheaper than film. So the discipline of shooting shots to tell a story is gone, and what a lot of younger, and I mean younger filmmakers, so what, you know, when I teach like 18-year-olds at university, they overshoot scenes because they've grown up in a world where they've never had to maybe shoot on film and understand that you get one roll of moot film where you have to really make choices. So their reaction is, well, we'll get it all. We'll get it all and make a decision in the edit. That's fine, but that takes time to get it all. So what is missing is the discipline of film and what was great about film and why I particularly am very feel very fortunate to have made films on, on film is that you are forced to have a discipline of how many shots do you actually need to tell that story and... That's what I think is missing is that you can overshoot scenes now. And that's where execs will get annoyed is if you overshot something at the expense of dropping a scene, that's an irresponsibility of the director, basically. Um, I mean, like Marcus, you know, you were really good at understanding that. Certain people, or so, certain times people don't, uh, it's hard to hear it and it's hard to want to hear it. But the reality is everything costs money and time is money. And it's like, it's the most precious commodity we have as directors is time. I think you know, part of we... why
0: I probably listened was because on the retreat, I'd scheduled in like 10 shots in the second half of the day and got told not to do it. Um, but I did it anyway, thinking that it would be quick. But then the cam cost us like... It, it took like three hours rather than one and a half. And then like the lights literally went down, um, power went off, and I still had to shoot the thing in like three or four shots rather than the 10 to 12 that I'd actually planned. So I was like... <laughs> So I think the fact that you come into that point was probably a good time because i just
2: learned the importance of it from having fucked up, basically. Yeah, you know, film school is there for you to kind of have bad experience. I mean, like I said, I learned more on my film that was a disaster than I did on any film that I'm happy with. Um, not that a retreat is a disaster, a retreat is a wonderful film, but the experience, that negative experience, well, you'll learn more from that from any positive experience. You
1: know, you were talking about, you said that I really like to uh, start shooting quick. Um, before it sees that stagnating and they're just repeating the work because you don't know how quick a crew going to work so how do you kind of like how do you gauge that or can you gauge it
2: when you're working with a professional crew they should the minute you know the cool times there they should be good to go you know that there's things i do to help that so like you know i said i do my shot lists the day or two before usually two day two days before the shoot day what i'll do every morning is photograph so i do it on a bit of paper it always sometimes it gets to the point where i'm doing it on sides and you like i say you can see them on my instagram like this i do side by sides and i'll send those to the crew to, to all the hod's but i include the grip the, the the key grip the gaffer focus puller on that and the operator if you've got an operator to make them feel included so then generally what happens is when i get to the floor and i get to the floor you know i, I always arrive an hour early to set have breakfast And then i'll go to the floor half an hour before everyone else and usually there's people on set usually it's art department doing last final dresses it's the the production designer checking that she's happy it's you know the dops i work with are generally there the same time i am and the reason i do that is because there's nothing better than being on a floor when you're not on the clock so i like being on the floor an hour or half an hour before call time and lunch because there's no pressure, there's no time. I'm not feeling any pressure. So it's when I can be my most creative. It's when I can, I don't feel like I'm having to make decisions quickly and and sort of efficiently. I can sort of ponder and discuss and figure things out in a kind of unpressured way. I don't put any pressure on anyone else to do that with me. But what I find is that when all the crew slowly arrive and I'm doing that first run-through on that first scene with the cast, I can see the crew going through the day and looking at, and because i work a lot with the same people so you know I work with a group called jim Neal. jim will immediately look at that stuff and while i'm rehearsing he might say to the first look if lou's gonna he's got a track here can we start with that and i'll start bringing the stuff up and we can lay that and the people i work with know that i like to work fast you know i don't like the actors to be hanging around so and the reason i do all that pre-production and that work for them is so that they can work efficiently so there's things you can do as a director to help. And a lot of it's about communication. Crews can work if they know what they're working and doing. Do you see what I mean? Whereas what will happen is if a director takes... A, you know, my block throughs aren't that long. I kind of have an idea of what I want, talk about it with the cast, talk about the scene with the cast, do it generally sometimes do a line run before I even block it to check that the script is flowing. So I'll line run it with them. And we might go, this bit, we need to fix this bit. Or we need to look at this. Once we're happy with the lines, we block it. And then I just generally go thinking this and I go, great, let's just not do any more on it. That feels like that works. Is everybody kind of happy? Yeah, great. Then me and the DOP will talk about it. So We'll look at the shot list and the grip will usually stand around and listen for that. Sometimes they won't, they won't be in the room, but sometimes they will. And the other people in the room are usually the script supervisor for the rehearsal, the DOP in the first. Um, i mean i know you two know this from from how but then uh and then me and the dop will just figure it out and then when the then we do a crew show the first has the information to go these are the shots we're going to start with the wide on the track back there you know jim needs 10 15 minutes to build the track so you know let's let's look at getting cast back on in 20 and we'll go from there so it sort of runs efficiently and that way the cast is sort of when you get into that first wide i usually start on the wides because i still quite haven't found the performance we've sort of found the shape but not the performance and it depends on the nature of the scene if it's a big emotional scene then i won't i'll sometimes say to the dop and the first particularly the dop thing, if you can can i start on if the actor wants so like you know i've had it where even on the last thing, the, the last thing was very, very big emotional stuff. It's about, Pierce, it's not about Pierce Sutcliffe, it's about, it comes out in September on ITV, and it's a seven-part drama about the people, the victims, and the families connected with the crimes of Pierce Sutcliffe. And it follows a five-year period as the police were trying to find the man responsible for killing these women, and it focuses on the women and the families. So you can imagine there's a lot of big emotional scenes of families and with that, you're kind of being led by the actors. And the problem we had with that show was there's a lot of day players who are coming in who are victims or whatever, who are coming in that don't have a relationship with any of the crew, don't know me, and have to come in and find an emotional level immediately. And so you have to be led by them to a certain extent. I come in and a lot of those... There's a beautiful scene sequence in episode five where two women... Interviewed, a real thing that happened where there, and one was, one wanted to be included because she was adamant she was a victim of this, of this, whoever it was that was doing this to these women. And the police didn't really want to believe her and kept trying to undermine her story. And there was one woman who really didn't want to be included, who the police were sure was a victim because she didn't want any of the stigmatism associated with being a victim of this crime. And these two actresses had to come. I didn't know them and they had to find a level of emotional uh, range immediately in a room full of crew that they don't know, et cetera, et cetera. You have to be led by them. And because it was an interview scene, I knew they were sat down. So you go, you start and you say to them, okay, we figure out the scene and the emotional level. We do a lot of conversation around it. And then I say to them, like, in that situation, I don't even give the DOP a choice to say no. If they say to me, look, some actors will say, Look, I need to build up. I'm not quite, you know, if you're a new actor coming onto a space, it might be like, Look, I need to, I need a couple of takes. So I say, Look, do you want me to start wide and, and get in? And if, there's, if and, I, and if we do the wide and you're like, I'm ready for the close up, I'll, I'll come in. Cause that happens. Sometimes you shoot the wide and the actor will go, I, I feel quite ready. Is there any way you can do the close up now? And you go, Yeah, you have to facilitate that. But there are certain times where the actors like they're using the energy of the fact they don't know anyone, they're nervous and they feel vulnerable as an actor because you are being vulnerable in front of a camera to give a where they go, no, actually, if you can get a close-up now, I can use what's going on as a as a way to emote. So, you know, you're constantly being led by, well, I, I constantly try to be led by the actors um, about how, how we shoot. Uh, and a lot of that's about, you know, the crew know what I want to get. The order in which we get it is irrelevant. If we can be quick, great, but quick shouldn't. I don't choose quickness over performance performance for me dictates everything once i've got the scripts really strong performance is the next thing if you listed things that people care about when they watch films and tv you know it's generally story performance and then kind of how it's shot whatever whatever something could be shot really poorly and lit really poorly but if the story is good and you've got great actors no one gives a fuck. and then you add the extra layers on top of it don't you? you know you add the production design and the um, cinematography and the sound and the music and the edit, not to undermine any of those disciplines that are all important to make a really great piece of work. But at the bare minimum, if you have a piece of work where you've got a really strong story that's well acted, it carries. Um, so that's, that's my kind of, and every director has different, the different principles that are important for different directors. Just for me, those are the two key principles. The script has to be right. The performances have to be right. After that, it kind of tells me how it wants to be shot. In what order and what the shots there are needed to be told. So now I just want to talk to you very quickly just about you know,
1: alongside films and TV, obviously they're important, but you're also a parent, mm-hmm. and and I think it's an important thing to cover, and it's it's something that we do ask um, people that are, we know that are parents about how they kind of balance, you know, because this is it's all consuming, yep. like you just said that, but you know, when you finish on set, you'll go and then you'll straight away start looking at cast tapes, and then you'll you know look, read 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 an episode and then plan for the next day ahead or a couple of days ahead. How do you balance that? Family, work, and being a father, and being in your kids' lives.
2: Uh, it's really, it's really difficult. Um, it's really difficult. Uh, it. The big thing is having kids. Um, mm-hmm. makes uh, having kids has realigned how I think about my career and how I perceive what I want because it puts into perspective what you want. Now, some people might have kids and it doesn't change their aspirations. They still want to do go to Hollywood and work in America and do this and do that. Now, I want to. I've always dreamed about doing big studio movies. I've always dreamed about doing comic book adaptations well before the wave of kind of the last 15 years. I grew up reading graphic novels, uh, still read graphic novels. Uh, I still love genre cinema. I grew up with Spielberg. Um, but my desire is to go out right... You know, I have American representation uh, and I'd like to work out there, but right now my priorities aren't... My children are quite small. They're, they're five and two. My priorities aren't I'm not desperate to take a job in America to be away from my family. The way I look at it is that will come. There'll be a time in their teenage years where I'm less important and relevant to them than I am right now. Uh right now my kids are little uh and they're at that magical age where they're discovering who they are and the world around them and um I you know so I it, it's tricky. So I obviously did the last couple of years away from home. So what I would always do when filming is make sure every weekend, even if I just got one day off, I come home. So, and this is just me. It's me and it changes for every director. I don't like to be away from the kids and I'm not in a position where my wife, who has her own career, and just pack up and, you know, a lot of director friends I know that have families. And this, look, this is a really valid thing to talk about because ironically at the age I'm at now, it's the thing I talk to a lot of directors my age about is the work-life balance. Um, because it's tricky. It's hard in our industry. And you see a lot of, and we're lucky as directors that we get pre-production and the edit. So one of the big benefits of COVID, and there aren't a lot, um, but one of the big benefits of COVID is remote editing. So I, I now have a system where on every show, Sasha has the remote edit attached to our edit system. So I don't have to be in the edit exactly like I'm on Zoom with you now. I have Zoom and I can see his face, but I have a big screen on the Zoom with the live feed from the edit and the sound from the edit. And I can sit. So I, you know, so I just did, the last show I did, I was away for 34 weeks. 20 weeks filming, 14 weeks. No, 20 weeks filming, yeah, 14 weeks prep. Now, of the 14 weeks prep, let's say four or five of those weeks, I was only doing a couple of days a week in Yorkshire. And then i'd do everything else remotely because i was building mood boards i was casting so i was around a fair bit but then the last 10 weeks of prep i was up there come back on a friday afternoon go back on a sunday night uh make sure I was always there for the weekends which puts a lot of pressure on my partner which is tricky uh and you need an understanding partner and and that kind of stuff and i had you know we, we had to find extra levels of support so sometimes directors have to my best friend moved back to scotland so that his wife has got her support network there so that when he's filming away, she's got her network, etc. cetera. So you, you make changes to your lifestyle to help support what you do. Um, and, you know, when we started filming, I came back every weekend, but that was on the basis that because I did, and me and my wife, the, the other thing is every decision I make, I have to, me and my wife have to talk about it. So when I agreed to do the last job, it was such a long period away from home. The only reason that we said yes to it was because Once we got to the end of that 34 weeks, the post was just under a year. So I was going to be at home for a year in London posting, which basically has meant since we wrapped in Fuck, when did we wrap now? Um since we wrapped last September, I've been home. Uh, September, yeah, September. Since last September I've been home. So uh and I took my daughter to school every day. In from September when she started school, I took her every day, and you know. So in the edit, when I would go in, I would go in for ten. You know, like you just try and find allowances, Um, but that doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean I worked any less. I'd still, when the kids go to bed, I'd still sometimes have to watch cuts and do things to make up for the time that you take out elsewhere. You just find a balance. You do, you do find a balance, but it's. I mean, look, it's harder on your partners and the kids. I think it's harder on my the people around me than it is me because I'm the one actively doing something I love. So it's harder on, I'm very aware it's harder on my wife and possibly my kids um, than it is. I mean, I really miss them all, but, and so the reality is the next job I'm doing is, is in London. There, there was one of the things that after I finished that job, there was, even if they'd offered me the bestest, the best, the bestest, the best show in the world uh, and wanted to pay me, You know, stupid amounts of money. I knew that my next show had to be London because I'd been away since time. So we did Dares and then the pandemic happened, which was amazing in some ways and horrible in others. You know, the one thing I think we'll forget about the pandemic is whilst, yes, it was really horrible, I'll never get that time back again where every day felt like a Sunday. Like every day I woke up. We had breakfast. We played in the garden because the weather. Do you remember the weather was amazing that, that whole month of April?
0: Everyone I, romanticizes that first lockdown.
2: I, I played. I, I played in the garden with my two-year-old. We then do our our walk. Our one a one day. You know, you'll add one walk a day, and we do a long walk to the mm. shop. You know, and then come back. Yeah. And then we'd watch. People started to hate working. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck did we? Well, do and, I, <laughs> and we we're in an industry. You know, the difference there is that some people were in a position where they were still having to work. We were in an industry where we couldn't work. Mm so i once i yeah. finished the edit on des remotely like i didn't have much to do so you know you don't you know so i did that lockdown and then i did time sherwood and the long shadow back to back so it's three years i've been filming away and doing weekends whilst i'm in pre-production and shoot um so it's really important that the next job had, had to be more local and it will change you know i was that's the other thing it's like your work-life balance changes constantly. It's not like you become a father and your work-life balance changes and you, uh, you know, when both my kids are at school it is in another couple of years, it's gonna be more feasible for me to go away for two months and do something. The the other thing is financially, like I'm always a big believer in that. like financially you may be driven to do choices and things like I might have to work away next year if we need money to survive so like the work-life balance is you only talk about it if you're in the perfect situation where you can pick and choose and all that kind of stuff but the reality is that's not life so it's really hard it's really hard because like you say this industry is uh is relentless and i think as well like i think it's harder on women who are parents i think there's a stigmatism to like people that want to like, I don't think we should be able to work six-day weeks. So I'll get in trouble for saying this, but um, by producers and executive producers, I understand why we do six-day weeks or six-day fortnights. It means you get an extra day out of the actors, weekly engagement fee. It saves money, blah, blah, blah. It's really unhealthy. As I said earlier, as directors, we get pre-production and we get the air where we can be more present and the shoot is all-consuming. Shooting crew shooting crew all day of the year. If they're giving up one day a weekend every two weeks, how are they getting even the remotest sense of a work-life balance? And the exec producers that see the cost saving in this, they're not working 11-day fortnights all year round. So I feel like we need to be, you know, I feel like where we're at now with 11-hour days, 10 on camera, and I think five-day weeks is kind of where we should be. I don't think we should be working I think everybody should have a two-day weekend, whether that's Saturday, Sunday, Sunday, Monday. If you need to shoot in a location, it's not available But people should have two days off a week with their families, because of all shooting crews. What do they get? Like you know, I've, we talk about our work-life balances. We get much, we get it much easier, especially now with remote editing and yeah, you know the you know all of those things. They get paid quite well, but
0: it's like zero time to enjoy the money or like actually use it and their mental health
2: must be fucking shot to pieces. And, well, and the of, I'd love someone to do a survey on how many divorces and marriages yeah. break down because of shooting crew being unavailable and unaccessible for their loved ones, you know? Because they must be absolutely um, fucked when they even get to a weekend, like because the physical yeah. work involved in
0: working at that level, for not just 11 hours because they're usually sometimes doing an hour before an hour after, so
2: crazy. I get ill. So, so four or five days after we wrap filming, every job I've ever done, I get ill. Um... And on Sherwood, there's pictures. Sasha took pictures of the remote headache. I got pneumonia. I had to go to, I had to have, you know, I got really sick. It's like my body, like, it gives me this energy for a shoot so that on the last day, I'm as sprightly as the first. And the minute the minute my body no longer needs to do that, like, it's like, oh, all those illnesses we've held off. Here they go. You can have them now. Uh, imagine if you're a shooting crew and you just don't, you know, I'm knackered after a 20-week shoot. I'm knackered. But I know I've got a year six seven months six months in an edit where i can rock up at 10 drink lots of tea and water and runners get me food and lie on a couch watching the screen imagine as a as an, a shooting crew knowing you've got a week off and then the next job starts Ow, that's painful do you see what i mean so yeah they were, they were
1: pretty i remember on dranias they were they were pretty shot they were yeah, pretty yeah. worn out when they
0: like really worn out went from like spain portugal cornwall like wales like up north like all in one sort of so they're just everywhere
2: and that was what is that like a year of filming was that something like
0: yeah pretty much yeah it was yeah it ended up being a year it's supposed to be 10 months but yeah it turned into nearly a year because of covid um they're always shooting but sometimes i had to go down to like skeleton crew or like a uh, single unit and shit like that yeah
2: yeah it's brutal but it's a good question because i feel like you know and i and i also don't want people that want kids particularly female directors that want kids and family to feel put out. I think there's a there's much more support from exec producers in terms of families. Like for example, I've never had any problem when I've said to an exec producer, look, I'm gonna do majority remote edit. I'll be there for all the reviews and I'll be in the edit. This isn't me sort of like, kind of sort of swerving my responsibilities. I'll do the work, but I need to do it in a way where I'm here for my family, whether that's been able to drop my door at school or pick her up or whatever it is. You know, and I've never, ever had anyone say, well, that's not how we work. You can't do that. I actually find the exec producers in terms of directors are very supportive of that. Leslie Manning ironically talks about in Directors Now, talks about her experiences of having a child and having to shoot something whilst having a four month old, you know. Uh, there are lots of incredible stories on directors now, female directors that are just, in my opinion, just gods where they have children, they keep working or they're pregnant and they work through the pregnancy. And they're nervous to tell people because there used to be a stigmatism maybe about doing it. And I hope there isn't anymore because we should be much more supportive of trying to protect People, people you know, will, I think, will be much more responsive if they feel they're being protected in a way that, uh, you know, that maybe the industry I don't know. I don't know. It's 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 difficult. Brilliant. Right. I think that's the bulk of the chat. <laughs> uh. Mamma. Just I've, I've just I've just I'm rabbited. Serious. I've just literally verbally diarrhea over every single No one, well, that's that's great, man. There's no one left. You know, it's just us three on a podcast now. You know that, right? It's like everybody else just checked out, you know. You know you know when we first
1: sat down like last year coming up with people to get on, we had you on our on our list, right? We're gonna get Lewis and we always knew it's gonna be a long chat whenever it is. Yes.
2: Yeah. We'll put the we'll put it off until we've got the energy.
1: Nugget of the week because uh both Marcus and I consume so much content to inspire us. Um and it doesn't. you know, it might be a book, it might be a quote, it might be anything. So Lewis, what has inspired you this week
2: when you asked me about nugget of the week uh yesterday i was thinking like in terms of advice i don't have something brilliant to give you but uh in terms of what has inspired me recently but i mean i have been inspired by uh cinema right now uh, in terms of i think i'm hoping that the, the barbie oppenheimer double bill sort of makes people realize that uh you know, although you could argue Barbie's franchise slightly maybe, but that actually original filmmakers backed and supported can can create box office success as it did twenty years ago when we were all consuming movies in our cinemas and hopefully get when all the franchises exactly. Began. <laughs> and look, I love franchises. I adore <laughs> yeah. franchises. I just wanted there to be room for both. Um and I also think if we have more and look, we're talking about particularly Christopher Nolan it's not like it's a new filmmaker that they've supported in the same way as maybe Greta who's not even new herself but there is a lot like i feel like she was supported and given the ability to, to to make the film she wanted but if there is more films like you know like we used to have when we had taxi driver and you know uh the movies that we grew up with um the independent filmmakers who were given opportunities to sort of flourish and bring their pictures and films to, to the screen hopefully it makes the Franchise is better because they're able to use those filmmakers and those experiences, but also they're challenged by films that audiences want. Audiences want those movies. The only way Marvel survives is if there's more films to compete against Marvel that cleanse your appetite, so you want to go back. If all you're eating is pasta or popcorn, at some point you want something else. And the problem right now is the cinema for a long time has been absolutely chock-a-block with popcorn. And I think people are a bit sick of it. And that's why Top Gun did so well. I love Top Gun, but it was just a breath of fresh air. But I mean, so uh, I don't have any, that's i I'm inspired at the moment by what's going on. But the only advice I have, which I kind of wrapped into everything I said, is just this idea of, um, well, I can give you two nuggets that were given to me when I started my journey. Uh, one of them is a nugget that was given to me by Jeff Thompson, who said to me, we all get the same amount of time in a day. And he said, and what I mean by that is he said, you can't use excuses as, I've got kids, I've got this, I've got that, I do this, I need to go to the gym, I've got this, or all those stuff. He he wrote um, his book, Bouncer, which then became a film and, and stuff. And Bouncer is an incredible book about uh, redemption and forgiveness as well as it is about a man who became a, a doorman in Coventry in the 80s. He wrote that whilst he was working on a factory in the toilets and in his lunch breaks. He wrote that book over two years, published it, and then became a writer. And he's and he's a martial artist. He's a black belt and a, a motivational speaker. He's everything. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. Uh, and Jeff says, you know, we all get the same amount of time as in the day. Muhammad Ali has the exact same amount of time in the day as, you know, an amateur boxer, You know, it's how you use that time and how you mentally process that time. And it's not that you need to use every minute of every hour of every day doing what you do, but it's about carving out precious time, focused time to put into what it is you do. So if you've got a family and you only have an hour or two at the end of the day for yourself, it's making sure that 20 minutes, half an hour of that time are focused for you to do the best work you can in whatever it is you do. So that's one thing that just, I don't know why that stuck with me, but any time I found things difficult that coupled with the next thing that he told me, which was, he said to me, in this game and in any profession where you're trying to get somewhere that's difficult, every day you you're doing it, somebody dropped out because it was too hard. And what we want to do is directors is very difficult. There's a lot of people that want to direct and there's a lot of people that, that want to do it. And then for some reason, people drop out because of circumstance. And unfortunately, as someone from a, a sort of working class background, a lot of that sometimes is financial, as I've spoke about a lot on the on this podcast. But what he said to me is, if there's a way, if there's any way you can stay the course, every day you question or doubt what you're doing, know that if you're still in it, other people quit, and you're closer to the goal, the the, the goal you want. And the goal we've been talking about is that first credit. So for you to, is you know, like or whoever getting that first credit is sometimes is about staying in the race and the longer you're in the race at some point you're going to, to to get to the finish line. And I think those two things together, this idea of managing your time and understanding that th- there's no pr- privileged position in terms of people from certain backgrounds don't get more time, get this. We all get the same amount of time. It's how you use that time. So, So I think what you two have done here with this podcast is amazing. It's exposing you to people it's it's helping people it's just a phenomenal thing to do with your time and your energy you know so using your time and then that understanding that anything you can do to keep yourself in the race so that might be taking a job that you don't want to do so for me it was first it wasn't something i necessarily wanted to do didn't realize i'd learned so much from it but but did and also ended up helping unlock the gate that needed to be unlocked at the end, which I never realized it would. It was never the intention. It was solely done as a financial practical thing. Um, Whatever it is you have to do to stay in the race, you know, do it basically. Um, With that, my nugget, which I often tell people, is never be closed, which all ties into the same thing. Never be closed to an opportunity. So, you, you know, Marcus, I might say to you, Hey, look, I know you want to direct, but do you want to come in a third AD for a block of something? And it might be that that's not what you want to do. But sometimes you have to look at it and go, what would this lead to? Where would this take me? What would I learn? It might not be that for you. But I'm just saying, like, never just say no. Always think about things. And if there is a way you can facilitate. I had a thing where when I was, you know, from the age of 18 to 28, I didn't, couldn't, couldn't get a break. Uh, little breaks here and there, but couldn't. And i remember there was a year i just said to myself i think it was when uh, i'd read uh yes man you know the book about the guy that says yes to everything and i went you know what in my career i'm just going to start saying i didn't i wasn't gonna say yes to everything i was going to say yes more and i did and i worked on a load of stuff and i worked on a there was a camera there was like not even a camera team there was a dop operator uh a grip and me and we did everything together no so it's a cameraman operator focus puller and me no grip so i it was a really basic track and we shot a tomb raider this guy was doing a tomb raider fan film feature film really ambitious guy called stephen reynolds really great really admired him he was someone that jeff thompson had mentored as well as me and real a guy that worked in the factories that wanted to be a filmmaker and make action movies and he's doing that He's done that for the wwe franchise for the last few years doing really well a lovely guy and uh on that job, the guy that was helping him and the editor had a company in in Birmingham uh, that gave me a job as as a director shooting corporate films, which is how I, you know, managed to sort of get going and sort of finance my own short films through their company. You know, growing up, but I wasn't going to take that job because I had no interest in the camera department. I told them that I said, look, "I'm not." great at the camera that's not what I did but they're like look we just need someone that is happy to lug boxes around like kit and and I just went yeah and I'm going to do it with that attitude of just going to throw myself in but it was only because it was at that time that I'd agreed to say yes to more stuff um because mm-hmm. it was unpaid and stuff but uh so I think being open to stuff as well so those kind of three things kind of work collectively which is kind of you know remember you have the same amount of time in the day as everyone else so it's about more how you use that time be open to experiences and opportunities that are outside of what your focus is because they might lead you back round to your focus and unlock other doors and and thirdly um you know if you can do those two things and stay in the race long enough you you are undoubtedly going to reach the goal or get close to that goal um but we need these things. We need these kind of words. Je- I needed those words from Jeff to keep me in the race because it's hard. It's really hard. And I think as Sam said so beautifully when he spoke about his experiences, you know, it's tough. It's emotional. You feel battered and bruised often. And, um, you know, you can't help but uh, take things personally because it's the nature of what we do. Um, and that's okay. It's okay to feel those things as well. Wonderful. I feel like I shouldn't talk sometimes
1: after you speaking so I can process what you're saying. Man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel
2: like, yeah, if it is just us three, it's been lovely boys. Um, it's been It's just yeah, lovely yeah. just to see your faces and to be able to, to chat to yeah, you. I, like I hope people have enjoyed some of the absolute nonsense that often comes out. No, it's bit... uh, in fact, what a lot of people, if there is anyone that's hanged about, there's a lot of sympathy now because they're thinking, bloody hell, these two had to be, had to sit in a room and uh, I say talk, they'd be spoken do <laughs> by this guy for long periods of a day
0: it's all good no it's great we appreciate it um how about your nugget of the week Oz so um
1: mine is a um Lucy Preble who is a fantastic writer yes. and she wrote on succession she posted her intro to the succession season three scripts books so every year they put they, put, they make the scripts into a book and then they put it out so people can buy it who are fans of it and she wonderfully articulated, like, vignettes on how a writer, writer's room functions um, from the perspective of a writer on one of the most successful shows, you know, in recent times. And there was there was a... I don't want to say what it is, I'm going to let people read it because we're going to put the link in the show notes, but she says a couple of things that, for me, were penny drop moments uh, in the difference between a writer and a director and why, as a writer-director, my brain sometimes um, overlaps and then kind of shuts down. But the way she articulated it beautifully was a penny drop moment. So please have a look at the show notes to see what she said.
0: That's great. Go on Marcus. Um and yeah, mine is a YouTube video as always, but it's um I recently watched Birth by Jonathan Glazer because uh, it relates to something that I'm working on, but it didn't do the business for him and I think he went a long time uh between that and making Under the Skin for whatever reason. So So yeah, I've been on a bit of a Jonathan Glazer hype, and uh, I I looked at the the under the skin behind the scenes. I think it's from it must be from like the Blu Ray or something, but someone's compiled uh, the all of all of the little vignettes which have been made, and it covers each aspect of that production, which is quite interesting uh, to hear how it went from obviously it's adapted from a book, um, so he's he's adapted it from being quite a more sort of generic sort of film in terms of like making it more sci fi and outlining scenes in a more sort of overt way to becoming the sort of um artistic endeavour it became. So yeah, it's it's interesting to see how uh over the course of it and speaking to his collaborators as well.
2: So um yeah.
1: Amazing. And
2: he said amazing film as well. Confession, I haven't I haven't seen it still. Have you not have you not? I love Glacier's I've got it on Blu-ray. I've I've got it on Blu ray. I've never put it in the Blu-ray and watched it <laughs> you know.
0: I feel like it's it might be like around ninety minutes as well. So it's
2: no, perfect when you've got kids is when well you're convincing the part like my wife doesn't like staying up too late so like like I have I saw Dune at the cinema trying to convince my wife to watch Dune he's like I spent a year since it came out every night going and she's like no it's over three hours no it's like we won't be in bed till like gone 10 and I'm like fucking hell live a little come on like, but uh, <laughs> so I have viewing habits if I'm on if I'm not on my own my viewing habits are often decided by length of film Um, so yeah
1: you know, this is, this is a ma- th- what you said days a mad thing as well because for those people that are in relationship with kids you know your time is no longer pre-kids um where it's like you know you could just on a whim go on a fucking weekend away to Cumbria to the lakes do you know what I mean you can't do that. everything is centered around your, your, your kids and it is until they're of age so into double figures at least and that what you said there is mad because it, that that's that's couple time. And it has to be something you've got to compromise on. Like, yeah, with me last night, I was like, let's watch something. Now nah, it's getting late, we need to go to bed. Yeah, but we don't get to watch anything. Yeah, but what you're going to choose is not something that I want to watch. <laughs> I was like, right, light off.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we do a lot of separate watching as well. Like, you know, she'll go upstairs and watch RuPaul and I'll, you know, I'll watch... Um, like, she hasn't... Ironically, she fell behind on all the Marvel TV series, so I've done all those on my own now. Uh, um, and... Uh, there's a lot of that stuff where like she's like, oh, I don't really want to watch that. You watch that. I'll go watch something light. And I also like to watch films I've watched before. Like I'm a big stickler for like, but if I flick on the telly and Lord of the Rings is on, I can't not go to bed. And it's been on Sky every night, like the last few weeks. I've watched Return of the King like six times in the last three months. And it's like, yeah, I got to bed really late because I couldn't stop watching it. And uh, there's certain films, man, if they're on, I just can't walk away from them. You know, you were talking about like,
1: the, the the age that your kids are at it's fascinating to see them kind of like look at the world in a renewed way just a day later than what they are because they've grown and they've seen something different and I find as a director as you get more experience do you look at your do you look at films like that as well where it's like shit I'm looking at you with a new head because I've done this and you 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 see things in it that you might not have seen in it before
2: a little bit I, I mean my big thing is I really want to make something for my kids but I'm aware that by the time I make something for my kids they've grown out of it it's really funny because I read where the world things are to them and like I, I I rewatched it because I was so fascinated by what he, how he translated that uh, in that movie. Um, my big thing also, I don't know if you have the same. Is like my kids are only five and two. I'm forever showing my five year old stuff that like is well beyond and I shouldn't be showing her. And my wife's like that's really scary. Why are you showing her that? And I'm like, is it like is it? Because I always imagine when I watched it as a kid. But the reality is I probably watched it when I was seven or eight or whatever. But um, and my kids have both. My kids have really active imaginations. They're always really playful, so they get really scared. Like I spend my whole time convincing them that there's there's no monsters because we watch them. Like I play with them, and a lot of the imaginative plays, me being some sort of feral beast and then running away. But it's because we watch a lot of like yeah, we watch a lot of stuff together, a lot of the Pixar stuff, the older Pixar stuff, and the older Disney stuff is you know it's it's quite frightening. Um, but my, but also my kids are like all humans. They they they. If you told them they couldn't watch that stuff, they love they love it. But then they get scared at night, and I get told off. So um, I have to be really careful now what I, what I'm allowed to show them. You know, speaking of like like like
1: monster and feral. Like you've you've covered a couple of fucking bad monsters in Des and fucking now the Long Shadow. Like how did you sort like how? It, obviously because you've put, obviously through your research seen some pre- I've read about some pre harrowing stuff more than the average person who knows about that stuff. How did you kind of like stay sane and normal amongst that as a as as an empathetic human as a father? I that? think that
2: filmmaking creates a barrier between you and reality. Is the reality is, is the, the, truth. the truth? If you were the poli- if I like so that I've seen certain crime photos and things and as part of research and sin things and stuff that if I saw in real life or in a real life context without the barrier, I, I would have been deeply sort of unsettled. And what well, you know what, well, there's some things, you know, you are, but there's a filmmaking barrier, a barrier puts a filmmaking, a filmmaker puts a barrier between you, slight barrier between what you and you're doing because you're creating something. And I, I, I had that experience, I used to shoot, um, I used to shoot aid videos for Islamic relief. I think I told you this last week. Uh, so I went to Africa and Somalia and uh Haiti after the earthquake. So we'd generally turn up after a natural disaster of some sort and film where the need for aid was and what Islamic relief were gonna do. And I'd create these videos and narrative. and the reason I was brought in as a self-shooter was because I didn't really know how to self-shoot it was because they weren't they used to take cameramen and get pre-pictures but no stories. So they took, started taking me to try and get narratives and stories uh that, that would create videos and I did it for years again it was a way I did it to earn money and I got to see the world and meet some amazing people and in that situation I remember there I remember going into Niger during the uh, during the drought and seeing loads of I hadn't got kids at this point and seeing loads of going into a malnutrition center with loads of moms with kids who were severely malnourished waiting to see people and I remember going in and being deeply moved like deeply upset by it but like having a job as a cameraman to get the images and the speed to these people and get these stories and it was only when I came back and finished editing or was editing and going to the end of the edit process did it emotionally dawn on me what the humanity of what I'd seen and 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 the and I and I the only thing I could think is that like there was a job to be done and there was a barrier between me and what I was doing only when the barrier started to remove and it was like done did it, my my emotions let me comprehend what I'd witnessed and seen and and been a part. Of. And also feel guilt. Feel guilt that although I knew I was there to try and to try and get money to help these communities, there was an element of white privilege and an element of guilt that I still captured their their worst moment. Like how and now as a parent I'm quite ashamed in a way. Because I like imagine if my child was ill and somebody came in. It's really hard, it's, it's really hard. And um, so now reflecting on that stuff, I get I get quite emotional and upset about it. But in the moment, I don't, there's a barrier there. There's a really weird barrier. Um, and I don't know if other filmmakers have the same thing, but yeah, so I don't really, I didn't, I don't really, the only time on the last two projects where I've really, well, the only time in any of those projects where I really feel where you feel and you carry it with you or when you meet the real people. Um, I'm developing this thing at the moment, spending a lot of time with the the family and those meetings and walking away from that are very hard and emotional. It takes a few days to sort of let that all kind of sink in and for life to kind of take over again. Um, But the minute we start filming it and you start getting into the practicalities of it and you're looking at stuff as research, it's research. It's really weird. It's only when you... Are faced with the people that I think it, it it has some sort of the cost of it when the cost of it is in front of you different. Although like I say in that film when I was behind the camera filming, there was an extra barrier which was the camera that was weird. It
1: was a big thing, man. Like because there's so much suffering that going on in the world, and when you see it and you prove to it, it's the reality of it. It does it does affect you and it does stay with you. Um, but yeah, I I hear that, man. Thank you.
2: No, thank you. Thank you for anyone that did bear bear witness to the the marathon conversation. But thank you for inviting this, me uh, as well.
0: Def- this might be our longest. <laughs> this might be our longest one, yeah.
2: <laughs> and well done. I think what you're doing is brilliant. I love these podcasts. So I'm just happy and re- thank I'm you. really happy you asked me because I think what you're doing is great. I really love listening. So thank you. Are you on socials, uh, Lewis? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, on Twitter. Uh, yeah. So Lewis, A-E-A. Uh, and then, which is my initials for my my name. And then uh, I've got a website obviously and then Directors Now is the big one. So, you know, if you do get a chance, don't look at my work, but go and look at the amazing directors that um, put their stories on Directors Now. And Directors Now has its own Twitter as well, Uh, but I only really use it to update when I put new directors on there. Um, But uh, yeah, it's worth a follow.
1: It is. It is like a thing. I remember when Anetta was on it. She. 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 She texted me. She. was oh, really? I've been asked to go on directors as now, so it's become a. You know what I mean? When. 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 when, when <laughs> She's made it. When I get on there,
2: i will know <laughs> that yeah, man. I'm there. You two could. You two could do it right now. I could send you the questions. Yeah, like I said to you earlier, like I think some of it is like, it's not about. It's not about being a in a certain place in your career. It's about putting your journey down and marking your journey at various points. I mean, I was. I always say you've made a feature film. I haven't even, like there are so many filmmakers that are working filmmakers that have never made a feature film and you talking about that within your questions it's a big deal it's a very big deal whether you write in your questions that you feel you've not achieved or whatever or however you feel after that it's really important it's really important for people to know that making a feature film as well like sometimes doesn't mean so you know like it's really important for you to put these markers down about your journey and your experience which is why it's really great what you guys are doing with this thank you so much well thank you for having me so
0: that concludes the episode with Lewis. So make sure you tune in next week. So if anyone does happen to be listening, get your questions in at directorstakeoutlook.com. And we want you to tell us what you want to know about directing or the film industry at large, and we'll do our best to tell you. We want to shape this as a resource for you. So do get your questions in and reach out to us on Instagram, which is the director's Take podcast, and also on Twitter or X, which is at director's Take, And leave us a review. We're a new podcast and we need all the help we can get. So I think that's it. Until next time, keep learning, keep failing and keep the faith.